Let me introduce you guys to the little flower of New York. A guy by the name of Fiorello LaGuardia. If you've heard of LaGuardia Airport, they named it after that guy. He was mayor of New York City back during the end of the Great Depression and during World War II. And they called him the little flower because he wore a small carnation in his lapel all the time. And he was five foot two. So this tiny little dude. <clears throat> but he was quite a character. Uh, raiding speakeasies and riding on fire trucks. And occasionally he would go down to the local city court and give the judge the night off. And as mayor, he had legal authority to try cases. And so one day, a cold January morning, as the story goes, 1935, he goes down to, and gives the judge the night off, and he sits as judge. And in comes a case of this old woman who has been charged with stealing bread. And she explains that the reason she did is because her daughter and her grandchildren are in really rough shape. The husband had walked out on the family. They had no food. They had no money. So she stole a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. And despite the sob story, the local shopkeeper was unwilling to let the charges drop. He said, Your Honor, that it's a rough neighborhood, and someone needs to be made an example of so that others don't follow suit. And as LaGuardia is sitting there, he says, Ma'am, unfortunately, the law is really clear. Uh, there's nothing I can do for you. It's a $10 fine or 10 days in jail. And as he says that, he's reaching into his billfold. And he pulls down his hat and he plops a $10 bill in his hat. And he says, for which I now collect payments. <clears throat> and furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for allowing our community to become a place where a woman has to steal bread to feed her starving grandchildren. And so as the story goes, the next day, the newspapers reported that a bewildered older woman walked out of a courthouse with $47.50 in her pocket, while an irate, red-faced shopkeeper had to contribute to that, as well as around 70 or so petty thieves, traffic violators, and New York City policemen who gave the mayor a standing ovation for the privilege of being part of his generosity. You know, sometimes grace is rather controversial. Sometimes goodness can even be a little bit offensive. I wonder how we might have responded. Were we the shopkeeper? Were we one of the bystanders? How do we respond to something that's just that, that good? This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6 and 7. Two long chapters, and we're going to be looking at how people respond to the goodness of Jesus. Do they rejoice at it? Are they offended by it? And just a quick caveat. Luke is longer in his writing than most of the other writers of the New Testament, and his chapters are rather lengthy, and we're going through two of them. And so as I asked myself the question this week, what part of Jesus do you guys not need to hear about this morning? I ended up saying, um, I think you should hear it all. Now, I'm not going to explain it all, but bear with me. And just as a start, Luke chapter 6 begins with two stories about Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees. One of the stories has to do with the authority of Jesus, and one of the stories has to do with a healing and a response to Jesus. And then there's this long teaching time known as the Sermon on the Plain. Immediately following, at the beginning of chapter 7, we have two stories. One of Jesus' authority, and one of Jesus' healing and a response. And these stories of outsiders contrast and compare with the stories of Jesus and the Pharisees. So, 
We're going to look at the stories, and we're going to go through the teaching time, but just remember, stories, long teaching, and then stories set in parallel to them. So let's dive in. Now, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain and rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. And some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? It wasn't, what they were doing wasn't the problem. When they were doing it was the problem. The Pharisees are saying, it's a Sabbath. It's a day for rest, not a day for work. And you guys are harvesting grain by taking that little snack. Well, Jesus answered them, oh, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Don't you guys know your Bibles, you religious leaders? David entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is appealing to a story back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David, who is God's anointed king, who has not yet become actual king of Israel, is running for his life. He has nothing. He's in danger and need, and he goes to the priests, and he asks for help. And the priests say, I have nothing to give you but this showbread that was in the presence of God. We just took it out, and the priests are the only ones who are supposed to eat it. But he gives it to David anyway. And neither the narrator nor David, God's anointed king, nor God's anointed priest in the story seem to have any problem with saying that in this case, human need comes above strict adherence to the guidelines and to the rules. And Jesus appeals to the story and lets the Pharisees know that he claims interpretive authority of the scriptures. And before they can even respond to that, he says, oh, and by the way, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Like this day that belongs to God, I'm in charge of it. What are you going to do with that? And now on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and he was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with a shriveled hand, hey, get up and stand in front of everyone. And so he got up and he stood there. I mean, in the words of Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Like there's a guy here who needs to be healed and the Pharisees don't have any problem with him being healed, just not today. Today is the Sabbath. No healing on the Sabbath. What is Jesus going to do? And Jesus, as we've seen before, he knows what they're thinking. And rather than dodge around the elephant in the room, he just squarely faces it and calls the man up front and center. And Jesus said to them all, guys, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? What is this day all about anyway? And he looked around at them all and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was completely restored. This is an amazing miracle. This is, this is something fantastic. A man was just healed. And in the last two chapters, when people are healed, the response is awe and praise to God and wonder at Jesus' authority. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious. Like, dude, they are ticked. And they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. All right, so we had a story about Jesus' authority. 
Jesus claims authority over the scriptures and over the Sabbath, and, and, he, and then he heals a man, and rather than responding positively, a group gathers to figure out, all right, what can we do to this guy? Now we're going to go into a teaching section, and we're going to get back to two other stories. But these two stories are on authority and healing. We see, well, I just said all that. So, But I, Jesus did make it clear that in God's kingdom, compassion trumps rules. Like God's laws were never meant to prohibit you from doing what was needed in the moment to engage human suffering and to meet human need. People come first in God's kingdom. Now, on one of these days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles, sent ones, emissaries, and these guys were Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James and John. They're the fishermen from chapter 5. And, and Matthew, likely the same guy as Levi, the tax collector. Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus. Simon, who was also called the zealot or, or the patriot. Judas, the son of James. And Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And he went down with them, and he stood at a level place, and a large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from the coastal regions around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Like, this is a huge group of people. You know, just draw, like, a circle, 70 miles, you know, in radius around where he's ministering, and people are streaming in because this guy is popular He's a good teacher. He's healing diseases. And you got like Jesus and the apostles, Jesus and the disciples, Jesus and a, a monstrous crowd. And those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. So you just got like this big old press of people around Jesus. And looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Like, what? Hey, you needy folks, happy are you? Huh? This is, this is upside down to the way we normally think. Normally, it's like rich people. You're the ones who are blessed, and you're the ones who are happy. You who are need, needy, uh, not so much. And what is Jesus doing? So first of all, who are the poor? And back in Luke 4, Jesus said he's come to bring good news to the poor. And in the next two chapters, we see that the poor is more than just the economically downtrodden. Um, it includes them. But the poor looks like a guy who's possessed by a demon. It looks like an old woman afflicted by, um, who's suffering from a really severe fever. It looks like a leper who's healed, a paralytic who's healed. It looks like even a tax collector who is not necessarily economically poor, but that's one needy fellow. And Jesus brings good news to them all. Blessed are you who are poor. Why? Because God's kingdom belongs to you. Blessed are you who hunger now, because you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, and they insult you, and they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy. And I mean, Jesus has our attention because, again, this is, this is the exact opposite of what we expect. But all of this stuff that he says, happy are you who are in these positions in, in uncomfortable circumstances because of Jesus. 
because of the Son of Man, because great is your reward in heaven. That's how their ancestors treated the prophets. So, you know, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, the 12, like those guys who were God's messengers, who we were still reading about their lives and their work thousands of years after they lived. They are the heroes of the ages, and their lives were miserable. People hated them. People locked them in prison. Uh, you know, story legends say one was sawn in two. That doesn't sound too pleasant. Like, these are our heroes And you who suffer on behalf of Jesus, you are in their camp. Blessed and happy are you. Why? Because God has a great reward for you one day in heaven. There's two kinds of people. And one of them are those who have faith in Jesus and follow him. But woe to you who are rich. And again, kind of like poor, it's it's a bigger category than simply economic terms. Woe to you who have no needs. Woe to you who are content and, and, and life is going really well for because, well, you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now because you're going to go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. That's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. There's two kinds of people. One who accept Jesus and the present sufferings that go with it and have nothing but an ultimate good future to look forward to. And the others who are very content and satisfied with their life right now, and they don't need Jesus, and they have nothing to look forward to. Kind of like that jerk in high school that you knew who was at the the peak of popularity, and he never attained more than that for the rest of his life. Like high school was as good as it ever was going to get for him. And Jesus is saying, woe to you. Everything you have, this is as good as you can expect to ever receive. So there's two kinds of people. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you loan to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? I mean, even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full but love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. And don't judge and you won't be judged. Do not condemn. You will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Uh, A good measure, like pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is the kind of goodness that's a little bit offensive, Jesus. Ouch! Did he just say that? Yeah, he did. He said it to people who trust that they are in the care of God and in his kingdom and have nothing but ultimate good to look forward to from God. To them who are faithfully following Jesus, 
He says, live like no one else lives because great is your reward in heaven. And he also told him this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? Like, you know, that cold morning when your windshield is like covered in frost, like don't even bother dethawing it. Just start driving and get your friends to follow you behind blind too. This is likely to go really well for you. It's like, of course not. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like a teacher. You're, you're going to become like the one you follow, and you're going to end up in a similar destination. And speaking of not being able to see, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, oh, let me take the speck out of your eye. When you yourself fail to see, there is a plank in your own eye. You've got a two by four coming out of that right eye socket and you are unaware of it? Like you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the the speck from your brother's eye. Uh, We are far more messed up than we ever care to believe. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes. They don't get grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So like these last three stories are all about just how do we see? Do you see someone's actions and their words? That's how you can determine their character, what's actually inside of them. And, and look to yourself first before you bother paying any attention to the people around you. And look to your teacher because you're going to become like the one that you follow. And then Jesus concludes this way. He says, and why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my word, which remember is Jesus and his 12 apostles and his disciples and a huge massive crowd that he's talking to. To all of you who have come to hear what I say, are you going to do what I tell you to? For everyone who comes and hears my words and put them into practice, I will show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and he laid the foundation on rock. And when the flood came, when the flood came, the torrent struck the house, but it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And the moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. So we could take, I don't know, we could take a couple months on what we just covered there. But remember, we had two stories of Jesus. We have a long teaching section, and we're going to get into two stories that parallel. So I'll just summarize this like that. One warning. If you're not doing it, it doesn't count. Those who faithfully follow Jesus are blessed and secure, and you can tell who they are by how they live and by how they love. And those who reject Jesus are cursed and vulnerable. And you can tell who they are by how they live and how they love. And Jesus just takes our expectations of the world and he turns it on its head. You thought those who are blessed by God are the ones who are rich and secure and all their needs are met? No, I tell you, it's those who know their need for Jesus. And presently their circumstances might be miserable, but they're happy because they're in God's kingdom and because God has a secure future for them. And so they live generously and they love radically And they do the kind of things that no one else would dare to do. But for those who are comfortable, like, watch out. A time of judgment is coming when everything that you trusted in will give way right when you needed it most. 
There are two, two types of people. So now for the next two stories. Now when Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people uh, who were listening, he entered Capernaum. And there was a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly, who was sick and was about to die. And the centurion heard of Jesus, and he sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this. Because he loves our nation, he's, he's built our synagogue. And so Jesus went with him. But he was not far from the house. When the centurion sent friends to say to him, oh, oh Lord, don't trouble yourself. I don't deserve, like I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't consider myself worthy to even come to you. It's the same thing John the Baptist said. Like there's one coming who I am not worthy to even untie his shoes. And the centurion is saying, Jesus, I'm not worthy to, to come talk to you. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Because I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to this one, come. And he comes. And I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. The centurion says, Jesus, you have authority over disease. You just speak the word. It'll be done. I don't even need to come to you. I'm not worthy of that. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. I love it. He was amazed. The same thing that happened to the crowd that watched Jesus cast out a demon. And they're just amazed. Like, whoa. And, and the same word that happened to Peter and the disciples when Jesus said, you know, cast, throw your net into the water. And they caught so many fish, their equipment couldn't handle it, and their minds are blown. And like, what? That just happened to Jesus. He got a taste of his own medicine. Like the centurion says, like, I just trust you, Jesus, you have authority. And he's just like, <laughs> like he's amazed. And turning to the crowd following him, he's like, guys, I tell you what, I've not found such faith even in Israel. I've not seen anything like this. And then the man, the men who had been sent returned to the house and they found the servant well. It's a story about healing, but it's not about healing. It's about a guy's faith that just, just blew Jesus' mind, just amazed him because this man knew that Jesus had authority and he trusted in him. Story two, now soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Why would you say that, Jesus? Her son just died. She has nothing left. But then Jesus went up and he touched the bier that they were carrying the dead man on. And the bearers stood still. He, again, like touching a paralytic, this makes him ritually unclean. But he said, hey, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Then they were all filled with awe. With fear, they're just terrified, like, what just happened? And they said, a great prophet has appeared among us. Like, the only people in, in, in the Hebrew Bible who had raised the dead were Elisha and Elijah, like some of the greatest prophets of all time. And those two had to work a whole lot harder to bring someone back from the dead than Jesus just did. And he just like, hey, hey, come on, get up. 
And the guy got up, minds blown. And then they said, God has come to help his people, which is such an interesting phrase. For one, it's an allusion back to Exodus chapter four. God came to help his people in Egypt when they were slaves by sending the prophet Moses. Only maybe it actually means more than that. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So, I mean, of course, we have a story about authority and healing. And we see that Jesus, he has authority not only over, over disease, he has authority over death. He, he's a prophet whose presence demonstrates God has come to save his people, and maybe even more than that. But of course, there's a contrast. Remember the two stories in chapter 6. We saw the Pharisees reject Jesus' authority, and they're offended by his goodness. And so they gather to plot against him. Meanwhile, a Gentile acknowledges Jesus' authority, and a whole town celebrates Jesus' goodness, and they praise God for God's power at work through him. This is amazing. There's two kinds of people, those who accept Jesus' authority, those who reject it. But actually, there's, there's a third. But of course, these, these stories really question us. Like, what do we think of Jesus' authority and goodness? How would we respond to it? But now for the third type of people. John's disciples told him all about these things. Remember John the Baptist. He's in prison right now. Life's not so good for John. And calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? else because we want to be certain. This question repeated twice. Let's wrestle with it. Is Jesus the one that we're looking for? Is he the one upon whom our hopes are, are hinged? Because he's not, we're not sure. This is a little bit confusing. We'll see what Jesus says. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And then he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. Unfortunately, Jesus just never sees fit to give us a totally straight answer. It's just not his MO. He doesn't do it. He just says, all right, uh, you want to know if I'm the one you want? Let me just go to those Messiah boxes and just start checking them off. What do you think? Because he's quoting from Isaiah. Oh, I'm missing a slide. All right, sorry. That's okay. Um, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 61 that he mentioned back in Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor, to give sight to the blind, to release the captives, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus is just checking those things off his list and saying, go, go tell John what you saw. But blessed is, is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. Because one of the things the Messiah is supposed to do is to set the captives free. And John's in prison. And Jesus is not going to do anything about it. John, I'm the one that you're expecting. I'm just not what you expected. Blessed is anyone who doesn't get offended by that. Now, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Hey guys, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? 
A reed swayed by the wind, like a nice desert landscape for your watercolors? No? If not, well, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Of course not. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury, they're in palaces. What did you go out to see? What were you looking for? A prophet? Oh, yeah. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it's written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Like John is, is the, the height, the culmination of everything that has come before. But the thing that I'm bringing, the kingdom of God, is so good and so new that whoever's least in God's kingdom is greater than everyone who came before. Like John is like the ultimate update to Windows Vista. And whoever's in God's kingdom, even the first iteration, is just so much better off than the, everything that came before. And John is so important. He is, he's the prophet from Malachi chapter three, the one who's supposed to prepare the way for God to show up. And Jesus is saying, he came to prepare the way for me. Jesus just kind of tweaks the quote a little bit. Subtle question for us as readers. Wait, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Now, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, they acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Just a little aside from the author, that as Jesus was talking about how good John the Baptist was, all the sinners who repented and came to John to be baptized were like, yeah, yeah, God, you're, you're totally right. John was awesome. And all the Pharisees and everyone who saw no need to repent, who rejected John in his message, they didn't just reject John. They rejected God's purposes for themselves because God wanted everyone to be forgiven of their sins through repentance. But Jesus went on to say, to, to what then can I compare the people of, of this generation, specifically the, the Pharisees? What are they like? They're like a bunch of kids. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you did not cry. Like, you're not dancing to our tune. We want to manipulate your, manipulate your behavior, and you're not buying it. Dang it. Because John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. He was a, a, an ascetic. And you're like, oh, he's got a demon. I don't need to listen to that guy. Well, the son of man came eating and, eating and drinking, the opposite side of the spectrum. And you're like, oh, there's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I don't need to listen to that guy either. And she's like, what do you want? You're never going to be happy. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. We'll just, we'll just look at the people who responded to the messages of John and Jesus. And, uh, and we'll, we'll see what the fruit of their behavior becomes. What are you looking for? Because the Pharisees see the ministries of John and Jesus as different in styles as they happen to be. And they reject them both. They reject God's purposes for themselves. There's no need for repentance. But the tax collectors and the sinners, the needy people, the poor, the hungry, they respond to both John and Jesus' message. Style doesn't matter. And they repent. So what do we see? What are we looking for? 
When we see Jesus, he's, he's the one we were looking for, but he's not what we expected. You know, he's, he's the one who, he, he's the guy, he's checking all the boxes. But to a guy in prison, there wasn't much hope. To people who are poor and hungry, you know what, they're still poor and hungry. Their, their immediate circumstances has not necessarily changed dramatically. Their future and their presence in God's kingdom, that's what's changed. And, and that's enough that Jesus says, dude, you should be thrilled. Everything should be different for you now. We also see Jesus is the Lord who has come to his people to bring salvation. He, he's more than just a prophet. He is the son of God. He is divine. He is one of the members of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, loving one another from eternity past to eternity present. At the heart of the universe is, is a loving being in perfect relationship and community with itself that shares its love with all that it has created. Jesus is the Lord who's come to his people. And we see that Jesus is bringing God's kingdom, and it's just way better than everything that came before. And so we have a final scene that brings these two types of people and the third, which are those who haven't quite figured it out yet, into contrast. Now, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to come and have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. Despite the fact that these guys are plotting actively against Jesus, Jesus doesn't avoid his enemies. He goes and he eats with them. Now, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house and she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, this is notable. This is the first time that the narrator has actually acknowledged, yeah, this woman's a sinner. Everyone knows it. She's one of the, the icky people in society. But as she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She's standing there and she's just crying so much that tears are streaming off her face and splashing onto Jesus' feet as he's laying there on the couch. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. And then she kisses them. And then she pours perfume on them. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, Man, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. If he was a prophet, he would never let someone like that even come close. He would make space between him and the sinners because uh, that woman's no good. And Jesus shouldn't have anything to do with her. But Jesus answered him, Hey, Simon, I've got something to tell you. Well, well tell me, teacher, he says. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Like a, a tenfold difference between the two. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. And so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So quick question, you know, a loan shark lended someone $50,000 and someone $5,000. Neither of them could pay. And surprise, surprise, he forgave them both. Who loves him more? Yeah, 50,000. This is, is not a hard question. This is elementary math right now. It's obvious to anyone who, who hears the story. But Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Like, did the guy know that Jesus just set him up? <laughs> He's like, ah, I feel like I'm stuck, but 
the answer is really, really clear. And Jesus is like, yeah, you judge correctly. And then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I mean, does anyone in the house not see this woman? I came to your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. Like maybe you're not being rude, but you're not being super hospitable either. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. She's clean now. She's free now. She's forgiven. As her great love has shown. This woman has not said a word, and yet her actions have spoken volumes. But whoever's been forgiven little loves little. You Simon, I'm, I'm not doing much for you, Jesus says. You, you don't need me. You're good, right? You've been forgiven little, and your love shows it. But look at her. Look at what she's done. And so Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to ask them out themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She didn't say a word. She didn't have to. We see in the story, Jesus, again, he came to save sinners, just like you, just like me. And he accepts all who come to him. And the quality of our love will speak volumes about who Jesus is to us. Did, did he save us of a lot? Do we, do we love him a lot because we know just how much he's done for us? Or, yeah, take it or leave it, you know? Jesus is like, you know, the lady at Costco that gives you samples. You're like, well, thanks, and you're on your way. But your life isn't really changed with a debt of gratitude. Who's Jesus to us? Because there's two kinds of people. And those who, uh, those who faithfully follow Jesus are blessed. They're saved. They're forgiven. Those who see their need for Jesus and the kingdom of God and what he's bringing, they have, they have all this good stuff that Jesus is going to pour into their life. But those who reject it, those who are comfortable now, those who have no need for Jesus, the warning is that one day everything in which you trust will crumble and fail you right when you need it at most. And you, you say you're good, and so you love him little. You reject God's purposes for your life. And which camp will we be in? But of course, there's that third area of, well, maybe we're just not sure yet. Maybe we're not sure yet. So I think, to, to this notion, like responding, I think we should have faith in Jesus and faithfully follow Jesus and then let our love speak really loud. Now, have faith in Jesus, because of course, some of us, we think we're fine. We don't think we need Jesus. We're comfortable. Life is good. Uh, I'm not a sinner. I've got it all figured out. I, I'm an intelligent, educated, hardworking person. I can take care of my own needs. Thank you very much. I don't need Jesus, and I don't need what he's bringing. And all right, you, you say you don't. Again, the warning. One day, everything in which you trust will fail you. And Jesus says, woe to you. You have nothing good to look forward to. But to those who do want to have faith in him, 
like, you know, the questions remain, like, will we acknowledge his authority or reject it? Who do we say he is? Are we willing to investigate? If you're in that third category of people and you're just not quite sure, what do you need to find out about Jesus to decide, is he worth following or not? Is he actually have authority to forgive sins and heal disease and raise the dead? Is he actually the Lord or is he just a maniac and a crazy man who's making these outlandish claims uh, that really only God can make? Are we going to be like John the Baptist and, and go look? Like, does he check all the boxes or, or not? Who do we say he is? But I invite us this morning to acknowledge his authority, to repent of our sins, to trust him with our past, our present, and our future, and to follow him. Acknowledge that, no, he is the Lord. He is the one who has come to repent of his sins. It's a term that just means like, come back, turn, turn, like stop going in that direction, stop doing those things. Turn around and go in the other direction. Come to Jesus and then begin to follow him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins, of what you've done. No matter how messy or nasty or icky those might have been, no matter how shameful um, or undeserving or unworthy you think you are, Jesus has come to save you. And then come follow him. And what does it mean to faithfully follow? As Jesus says, like, you call me Lord, but you're not going to do what I said. Um, I invite you to go read Luke 6 again, because it comes to me like a sledgehammer to the forehead. This is hard stuff that Jesus says to do. Like, love your enemies, give to everyone who asks of you, don't take things back from those who steal from you. Like, Jesus, if I, if I do that, I'm going to be taken advantage of. Yeah. They're, they're going to mistreat me more. Yeah. Yeah, they might. It, it, it's a, a sermon that leaves me grasping and clinging for any out I can find. Like, let me, let me come up with an exception. Let me come up with an excuse. Let me come up with any reason to not actually uh, take Jesus at his word. But what he says is for those who have their faith in him, who trust that God is going to take care of their present and has their future secure, you can go and live like no one else. You, you can live a supernatural life because this is God's kind of love. He loves everybody. Whether they hate him or not, he's going to feed them all, clothe them all. He gives rain and, and food and crops. He, he takes care of the world regardless of what people think about him. Go love people like that. And of course, the first question, which I had to Google, I'm like, I need some help with this. All right. Uh, how does Luke 6 Jesus' command to give to everyone who asks of you work with the homeless population of Portland because that's just what comes first to my mind. I don't know about you. And there's a great article about it where people basically said, you know what, rather than looking for an excuse for how can I avoid blessing somebody, make the first thing that you ask, how can I love them? How can I demonstrate mercy toward this person? What do they actually need? And let the commands of Jesus force you to confront your prejudices, force you to confront your desire for comfort and richness and just say, how do I love them now? And what does that look like? Because no, yeah, it's not always money. Jesus doesn't actually give to every person what they want. You know, later people will say, show us a sign. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna dance to your tune. I'm not gonna do that. So think about it, but don't, don't let this excuse us. How will we faithfully follow Jesus because of what he has done for us? What kind of person are we? Because not doing something doesn't count. 
How do we love Jesus? How do we love like Jesus? And, and then just let our love speak loud. This woman, at the end of the story, she loves Jesus so much, she says nothing, and she doesn't need to, because everyone sees the extravagance of her love. Like, how do we live like that? What, what would that look like for you and I in our day and age? to love Jesus so much that everyone else is just looking on kind of with shock. Like, what? I was reminded about the story of, you know, the Sandy Hook Elementary School um, from years ago when a gunman entered a school room and killed a bunch of of innocent kids and their teacher. And then to watch how how this Christian community said, you know what? We're going to forgive the guy who did that. We're going to come around as family and we're going to love them and tell them that we care about them and we accept them. And it's all over the news because the world has nothing, no frame of reference for a divine love like that because those people love Jesus and they wanted to love like Jesus. Because there's two kinds of people in the world, those who faithfully follow Jesus and are blessed and those who reject his authority, they reject his forgiveness They don't want them. But guys, I hope that we will be in that first one, that we'll have faith in him, that we'll faithfully follow him, and that that our love for him, that our knowledge of all that he has done for us would just speak loudly. Because Jesus blesses those who faithfully follow him. Let's do so likewise. Let's pray. Gracious Father, your son is, is better than we imagined, but God, he's not what we expected. Father, we, we, know, we have followed Jesus and yet he still manages to just upend our world and, and tell us that your values and your priorities are different than the ones that we are exposed to every day on, on social media and on the news and on our phones and, and in our, our shops and the stores that we visit. That the blessed are the poor and the hungry and the needy and, and those who for the sake of Christ are, are persecuted and hated and mistreated and insulted but you say that you have a great reward for those who faithfully follow your son in heaven and that you're going to take care of us now. That with the measure that we use, it'll be measured back to us and that our our generosity will be repaid, repaid (laughs) in in full and beyond. That you are the good God who loves your people and will take care of us. Father, I I just ask that you'd help us to trust you in that. That you, you would enable us by your spirit to love your son, to know how much he has done for us. And that out of gratitude for him, we would go and live like, like no one has ever seen. Live in a way that the world has no explanation for. Father, we can't do it. We can't do it unless your, your spirit has awakened us to how much Jesus has done for us. Unless we're empowered to go and, and to live like Jesus. Father, I just pray that this community would learn to love your son better. That I would learn to love your son better and then to love like him. Help us to obey Jesus today and to faithfully follow him. In your name we pray. Amen.